This is episode 19, The Acorn and the Oak. This episode was recorded in January of 2021. In case you were living under a rock, 2020 was the year of the global pandemic, and uh, lots of things were going on politically. And as a matter of fact, this particular month was the insurrection at the Capitol. And not only that, but we had been in quarantine for almost a year at that point. And uh, personally, I had a lot of things going on. My mom had crashed skiing and got airlifted to a hospital in Palm Springs and had major surgery and is lucky to be alive. And then my mom, dad, sister, and sister's boyfriend all got covid and I lost access to my recording studio. So uh, let's say it was just <laughs> par for the course for 2021, right? So anyway, this episode, we talk about trauma. We talk about therapy and coaching, but we don't just talk about trauma. We talk about moving through trauma. And so I think this is going to be a very valuable episode and it was recorded under special circumstances, as you will find out. So let me introduce our guest, Michael Boyle, who is a licensed psychotherapist and coach and is also a former NHL hopeful who has learned how to go from just surviving to thriving. And so we talked about that a lot in the episode. I hope you find it a fun conversation as I did. If you like the show, please subscribe and review. This is the Language of Creativity podcast. I am in the middle of a dry river in our town trying this mobile recording thing. I wanted to do it from the park, but there was a large traffic jam in my town. So I had to drive somewhere else so that okay. I wouldn't encounter a ton of people. So hopefully no one comes and bothers me. I had a particularly interesting morning that I'll get into later. Michael yeah. Boyle, you're a therapist and coach. Is that correct? So yeah. So I recently made the transition exclusively to being a coach from being a psychotherapist for a number of years. And, and I was a practicing psychotherapist for a number of years. And about three or four months ago, kind of had to make a shift with some of the stuff going on in the pandemic. And it's actually been a great shift. It's really working out well, and I'm excited about it. So what is the difference between a therapist and a coach? Well, good question. So in certain ways, it's really just a frame. It can be a very similar type of work, but the frame is different. Particularly one logistical reason is, is that now I'm working with people all over the world and the therapy license is regulated state to state. And so I legally just can't call it therapy outside of New Mexico. And then the other side of it, though, that I think is the more important shift is the context of people arrive often in my office for therapy, and they are not necessarily there specifically for a specific reason, except for what they think therapy is. And what most people think therapy is, is venting and getting things off of your chest. And while there is something useful to that, the usefulness of that is limited and actually kind of statistically proven to not really help people actually change. And I found right. in the therapy context, it was very hard for me to shift people into 
even though I would try to provide them the education and they would say, hey, you're great. You're the most practical therapist I've ever met. You have so many tools of things that I can do. I found that the conversations just kept going back and back and back to people wanting to talk about their problems. Mm -hmm. And again, there's an important degree of empathy and being heard, being seen, being felt that is super important. But if we're not moving into practical things that we can actually do to change our neurology, to change our chemistry, then we're not going to actually change. And so one of my mottos as a therapist was my job is to work myself out of a job. You should be getting better. You shouldn't be here for, you know, two years, five years, 10 years, as is often the case. Right. And now as I've shifted to coach, people that are looking for coaching already come in with that understanding. They come in wanting actually what I was trying to do as a therapist. And so it's a much easier frame. It's much more effective getting much better outcomes, largely because the audience is different and the desire of people showing up is different. And, you know, it was one in 20 of my therapy clients that was kind of hungry for practical actions that they could actually do to change their life. And yes. now it's more now it's more like ninety nine percent of my clients showing up like that as instead of one percent. Wow, it's been much more fun for me in that regard because we all want to feel like we're effective at what we do, and it's exciting. I've studied and trained and have so many tools that are kind of practical things that people can do to really change things. I mean, I've gone from a tendency towards severe depression and anxiety to being basically a joyful, happy human being because of the amazing things about neuroplasticity and like we can really actually change. Yes. And so that's what I want to kind of share with people. And so this is a much better frame for doing that. What a shift, the desire to move through it and to get to a new pattern. Yeah. That strikes me as the kind of a growth mindset. Yeah. Which I found a lot with, it's funny, within the business community, I think people nice. have a growth mindset because people who you know, people who have some sort of observable metric with regard to whether we're doing better or not. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, I think the flip side of that is I think sometimes when we regress into something that is challenging for us that we don't want to be in, it can be easy to be like, oh my gosh, why am I here again? And, yeah. uh, you know, it's like the flip side is also to acknowledge that that is normal and that we're all going through a certain amount of collective stuff right now, yeah, especially totally. there's a lot going on. Um, you know, it's funny, you asked me this morning how I was doing when we picked up the call, and I didn't want to answer because right now I am podcasting for the first time from a park <laughs> <laughs> because I bought a mobile rig. I have a recording studio I normally like to do these in, but right now I don't have access to it because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so my father and his whole house came down with it. My father and I share an office and he still wanted to come in. And so there was a point where I realized that it was not going to be safe for me to come into cross contact. Once we realized I had the virus, I had to kind of stay away. So I haven't had a studio and I'm trying to figure out, you know, I guess with the rest of the world, how to work, how to make this work, how to do the things I wanted to do, how to have my own space. You know, we live in a two bedroom condo. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought, well, I, you know, I've always wanted to try and do one of these from the park. So let's just do Michael's and see how it goes. Nice. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a venture. So if you hear birds or helicopters or people shouting in the background, that's <laughs> part of what's going on. Um, so the other thing that happened this morning was I got a speeding ticket oh. away from dropping off my daughter oh. because there was this huge traffic jam out by my house. 
Uh-huh. And so it took 20 extra minutes to get my daughter to school. And it's already like, I have this problem where like, if I don't have a bathroom nearby, like it's a problem. It's kind right. of embarrassing, but whatever. So the school cannot open their bathroom because of health code, because they're, right. a, they're a preschool and they have very strict rules, which is great. But I still, <laughs> I still needed a bathroom. So I'm speeding to try and get to the coffee shop that's literally a quarter the, mile away. And some guy with a motorcycle pulls me over and I told him my sob story and he didn't care. The proverbial so, officer. Officer, I, need, <laughs> I, I swear to God, I really need to go. <laughs> so I'm sitting here, you know, kind of metacognating about the fact, well, okay, I'm really angry at my dad right now because he sort of doesn't get it in terms of like, oh, I have COVID, but I'm okay. So I don't need to, and you know, I don't really want to go into that. It's my family stuff, whatever. But I was like, kind of, you know, mad about that last week. You know, I kind of haven't had my space, whatever. And then I get a breaking speeding ticket and I'm like, Mm-hmm. fight the power <laughs> all of a sudden i'm like enraged with this thing that happened to me and i'm looking at myself from next to myself going you know this isn't really a big deal there are a lot worse things that are happening to people right now right. than you know you just got a speeding ticket right and i think that's a version of what we're all going through right now on some level there's so much going on there's so much ridiculousness and there's so much drama that it's kind of hard to navigate and there's so much change. It's almost like, you know, people who don't have the tools, it's like completely uprooting and shifting the foundation of what we, you know, sort of like base our personas around. You know, we have this little box that we keep ourselves in to stay okay. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, it reminds me, have you seen the movie of Bronx Tale? It was a old, no. old movie way back when. In any event, there's this scene where the kind of mentor gangster has a young kid that he's taken under his wing and he's trying to keep this kid out of the gangster world. And um, it's a great movie. But there's this scene where the young kid is like, you know, he's just hounding this guy. He owes me 20 bucks. He owes me 20 bucks. He owes me 20 bucks. And finally, this older kind of gangster, even though he's a gangster, you end up kind of, you know, liking his character. And he's got this warm side of him that is mentoring this young kid. Hmm. And he's just like, let it. And he just basically says, pay $20 to have that person out of your life forever, to never care about him again, to not think about him again, to not suffer for another second over whether or not he owes you $20. Wow. And then I've applied that like with things like speeding tickets. It's like, okay, I'm paying what I'm paying for. I'm not paying for the speeding ticket. I'm paying to not suffer about this for another second. I'm paying to let it go. That's the cost it takes for me to be free from suffering about this. It's a sunk cost. It's happened. It's done. It's over. And now... I am going to allow myself to just really, truly let it go. And so I attach the value of the penalty, so to speak, to my capacity to not suffer about it for another second. That's so true. Yeah. I felt myself having to do that, you know, after thing after thing happening, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people are going through issues with society and people and how people are reacting and behaving immaturely and things like that. And there is like a point where I just kind of had to go, I can't afford to get upset about this. Right. Right. Like not to cancel the feeling because you have to feel the feeling. That's part of it too. You have to give it a space, but it was like certain times where, you know, in the past, I think I've come through this learning process of realizing I don't need to repeat the story like more than twice. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The more I relive the story, the more I go back into that same feeling that upset me when it happened. And cognitively, as you were talking about neuroplasticity, I have found that to be true. Yeah. It's literally about 
the way you look at something can create an experience memory. Absolutely. Oh, and absolutely. you can relive it and relive it and relive it and relive it. And all that does is just color your now experience and put that shade on it. Absolutely. There's a concept in neuroscience called sprouting and pruning. And sprouting is basically whatever you focus on is going to get more neural architecture, is going to get more of your literal brain resources are going to start to form around that. And they're going to create a neural network. And that neural network is going to start to now filter your experience exactly like you're saying. And so one of the ways that I apply this principle of sprouting and pruning in a more practical way in our lives is just to say what you focus on grows for better or for worse. And we're in charge of what we focus on. There's enough evidence everywhere to prove anything, but what do you want to be proving? What is going to actually be useful for your life? And every time we think a thought, it produces a chemical. And those Hmm. chemicals, we call them emotions. And the thought happens in one part of our brain, the chemicals happen in another. But the thing is, is when you think a thought and it produces a chemical, then the chemical, the emotion, sends a message to the thinking part of your brain so that you think the way you feel. And then when you think the way you feel, you feel the way you think. And then when you feel the way you think, you think the way you feel. And this loop of thinking what you feel and feeling what you think generates intensity. And people mistake that intensity for truth. And they say, see, it must be true because I feel it. When really all they did was get stuck in a thinking, feeling loop, that's what generated the intensity. It's not necessarily true. In fact, memory science tells us that the memory is only about 50% accurate anyhow, and we make up a good 50% of it. Right. Hold on. Someone's like, what do you mean? My memories aren't accurate. <laughs> but like, seriously, like legal people know this, like it's, it's scientific fact that people are terrible at remembering things. If a crime happens and they're like, Hey, what color shirt was the guy wearing? Yeah. They just, Oh, it's blue. Like yeah. well, it wasn't blue. It was actually black or gray, but they don't remember. Like it could be red sometimes. And this is scientifically validated. <laughs> Right. And it's like that thing where, you you know, you have those games where you see only a part of the word, but you can still read the word. The brain fills in the details from the unknown. And the way it fills in the details is through the filter of past experience, of your conditioning, of your learning. Right. So that filter, there's a, there's a mechanism in the brain called the reticular activating system. And that is like the filter. And the reticular activating system will fill in the blank based on what your assumptions, beliefs, expectations are not necessarily based on what is objectively true or even beneficial for you. The reticular activating system actually gets programmed by what we spend the most time thinking, feeling, and acting upon. Right. So, you know, one of the kind of, for lack of a maybe more professional or scientific way to put it, one of the brain hacks is saying, oh, I can actually alter the reticular activating system to have a filter that is a beneficial one for me. And if I recognize that my brain is going to fill in the details anyway, I can't stop that from happening. I can manage and upgrade and optimize how it filters experience so that I end up having a better experience of life. Yes. It's so profound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is what excites me so much. And this is what you know, and I would be teaching these things to people in the therapy office and they say, oh yeah, that's great. That's great. And then I would say, well, this is how you do it. It's one thing to know it, but this is the how to. And so now in the last three or four months in this shift that I've made, 
I'm coming in contact with a lot more people that are hungry for the how-to. They're not just excited to say, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's really interesting. But let me tell you about all these problems. Because then what that is doing is that problem-saturated therapy, what you said about not, you know, not going over the story and over and over again. When we go over the story over and over again, the reticular activating system says, oh, that must be what this person thinks is important. Let me find and filter for other similar things about upset, about worry, about anxiety, about depression. And it only filters for what it thinks we think is important. And it thinks what we think is important is what we focus on. So, Mm -hmm. Well, not to mention, we're looking for the tiger in the bushes, at least biologically speaking, you know, our brains are weighted towards negativity. And that's like to keep us safe. Absolutely. I mean, to give you a perfect example of of shifting thinking, right? Like I've already started to move past the speeding ticket. And now I'm like looking outside at the birds and the hikers and I'm feeling the sunshine. And I've literally trained myself to just be like, ah, it feels good, you know, and just that's now my bias. So it was easier for me to return to that once I got outside and into nature and kind of had this, you know, place that I was going to be. It's a different place, but it's like, okay, I'm accepting. I'm, I'm, I'm content with it. And so that's, that's been like, this is coloring my moment in a sense. I'm really enjoying talking to you and, um, you know, I love what I do. I love this podcasting thing. So, you know, already that's helping me to, to move past it. And in a way, like I'm thinking back to, well, what was it that triggered me about the speeding ticket? Oh, well, like every time I've gotten a speeding ticket in my life, it's this indicator that I'm not perfect mm-hmm. and that there's something wrong with me. I did something bad. Mm-hmm. And I can see that with my children. Like my son mm-hmm. has that, you know, where he, you know, doesn't get a star in his chart and he's all of a sudden like just going crazy. And right. I'm like, wow, like that passed down and like that's still there, you know? So you want to talk about reticulating brain systems. And, you know, I'm thinking also like beliefs about ourselves that we carry with us that literally color our experiences. And I think are where those emotions and reactions arise from. Right. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I also participate in and have been a longtime practitioner in a system of spiritual work. And we talk about how belief leads to perception, perception leads to experience. So it's the BPE loop, belief, perception, experience. And so what we can do, again, on the how-to part of it, is that we can get into those beliefs and we can, we, <laughs> we mistake beliefs for truths, right? Yeah. Instead of recognizing that they're beliefs and beliefs are malleable. <laughs> and, when we, and when we alter the beliefs, then we alter the perception and we alter the experience. So that's the point of power. That's the point of change is that the B part of the BPE loop, exactly like you're saying. And there's a great book out there right now called The Power of Bad, which is about the brain's negativity bias. And the thing is, Mm. if if we're not consciously, deliberately kind of altering or changing or upgrading our beliefs or our nervous system, then we can rest assured if we're in our default mode, the default mode of our brain, the one, you know, say you pull the computer out of the package, right? When you buy it, the default mode of the software is already there. Well, the default mode of our brain is the survival mode, and the survival mode has this built-in negativity bias. So people think they're being realistic or practical, and they say, oh, no, I'm just being realistic. And it's like actually not realistic. The brain outweighs the negative probably five to one, um, and it actually lies. Yeah. So that's kind of an amazing thing is to recognize like if 
actually, in order to actually be realistic, I need to deliberately overemphasize the positive experiences in life in order to find that balance because the brain by itself will outweigh the negative five to one. Um, and that's how you could call gratitude right. a spiritual practice. Yeah, absolutely. And it's literally, it works. <laughs> it, it truly does. And at, at this point, right, it's one of those things where I'm like, it's become almost cliche to have a gratitude practice. But I tell people, I used to get in an argument with my professors in college and I would write a cliche in my paper and they'd mark me down and I'd say, hey, why are you knocking cliches? The reason why something has become cliche is because it's so universally true and it's the most accurate, powerful way to say that thing. And mm -hmm. it wouldn't have become cliche if it wasn't so. And I get their point. They're obviously just trying to get me to be more creative about how I say things and to find yeah. a more unique and original way of saying that same thing. But a cliche is almost one step away from becoming codified language at that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, but still, the reason why it's cliche is for a very good reason. And the reason why it's cliche to have a gratitude practice is for a very good reason, because it works. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a very strong temptation to mix metaphors right now just for fun, but I can't think of a good one. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's true. You know, and it, it's funny. So like as soon as I brought up and this is what happens in a therapy session sometimes, like as soon as I brought up my metacognition about that belief I had about myself of not being perfect. Right. And within that five minutes, I went from angry to sad. So right now the feeling I'm feeling is sad mm -hmm. and it's overpowering my experience in this moment. All of a sudden the, the, the beauty around me is a little less. Mm hmm present and I'm feeling this very uncomfortable feeling and mm -hmm. welling up behind my eyes, you know, and it, right. it's like, I think that process can be scary. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's overwhelming and you don't always know what to do with it. And, you know, I, I know that you've done some work around yeah. masculinity and I know that's one of the things, uh, a movie that I really, really enjoyed was The Mask We Wear. Mm -hmm. And it talks about that thing that men in particular have been taught in our culture to just, okay, emotion, just stop feeling it. Like, unless it's right. anger, just shut it off. Right, right. And what right. does that do to us? Like, how does that, what is, what literally happens if I were just to block that sad, I'm not going to feel sad. What well, would happen? Well, there's a, another saying, <laughs> I have a bunch of sayings that is you, you got to feel it to heal it. And basically when we shut down or we shut off to a feeling, what we're doing is we're, it's almost like, um, a nice analogy a nice analogy is you're in a riverbed right now so imagine that you are on the river bank and there was water running through that river if there's water running through that river that river has its own ecosystem that is empowered with its own capacities to create a sort of homeostasis that is good for it you know there's the right amount yeah. of algae there's the right amount of bacteria there's the right amount of bugs there's the right amount of fish and the river flows and it has energy and movement and momentum and so something might rise up and there might be an algae bloom, but then extra fish will be born in order to eat that extra algae. Right. And the homeostasis will be achieved. And so when the river is flowing, then health comes to the valley, the birds and the bees are happy downstream and everything is good. But if a tree falls in that river and then a branch gets stuck there and then another branch gets stuck and then it grabs onto the piece of, you know, the Coke can floating down the river. And then there's a little bit of a dam and there's an eddy that forms. And in that eddy, there starts to be stagnant water. 
And in that stagnant water, mosquitoes might start to breed. And those mosquitoes can carry disease to people in the community. And so the malfunction or the pathology comes from that stagnant water. Now, where therapy goes wrong, and I'm going to try to make the analogy switch to therapy, where therapy goes wrong is it says, oh, we need to figure out what's wrong with these mosquitoes and we need to fumigate the mosquitoes when all (laughs) we really need to do is remove the tree and let the river flow. And if the river flows, those mosquitoes that were born in in that stagnant water will float downstream, they'll get eaten by the fish, and the river has its own healing capacity. Our nervous system and our psychology has its own healing capacity. So when we refuse to feel something, that's like cramping up the river. It's not letting the energy flow. It's not letting Mm. the natural movement of things do its own thing. The other way though that we can cramp up the river is by, like you said before, thinking about the story over and over again also will create a log jam and then energy will get stuck. And then where energy gets stuck, we start to create disease. We start to create pathology. But when we simply have the courage to just feel it and just be with it and just be like, yep, there's sadness. Where do I notice it? In my body, because it's really good to get out of our head and get into our body because our head is going to keep it stuck. Our stories is going to keep it stuck. And we just notice, okay, well, I feel a kind of a pit and something in my stomach and I feel a lump in my throat. And if I just breathe in and feel that and then allow the physical tension to release, that will keep the river flowing. And then we'll return to homeostasis quite naturally and quite easily. And it's usually not nearly as scary or horrific a process as we thought it was going to be if we just give it a chance and feel it to heal it. Does that make sense? For me, it's right behind my eyes. And it feels like it's an egg that wants to break. Okay. The yolk just wants to run down and be allowed to just be runny. Like, and that feels better. Nice. (laughs) Like I think if I if I think if I hold it in my head, it doesn't it doesn't move. But in the moment I just break it, let it break, let it fall, let it let it run, then it just kind of dissipates a little bit. And I'm actually feeling it in my heart now. Nice. So now it's moving, right? And so just notice what you're feeling in your heart. And it's great if there's imagery to it, like you've acknowledged. There often is imagery. It often doesn't make sense, but that's another way that our psyche knows how to release things actually through imagery. And so you just continue with that process and you might, and you'll notice that if you pay attention to it and allow it, it'll move and it'll shift again. It caused me to start breathing more. That's what I just noticed. There you go. There you go. Yeah. As soon as it got in my heart. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks for sharing about that. I like the analogy of the river. I think that is true. I noticed that I started really healing a lot within myself when I started integrating the body with the emotional healing work. Yeah. Um, And I'm really excited about fields like somatic therapy. Yeah. For that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Have you ever encountered that or or known anyone who works in that field? Do you have any cool stories? That's one of the primary ways that I been trained to work. And also when I was myself going through therapy for working through my own experience of trauma and, and PTSD and head injuries, the, Hmm, I have those too. (laughs) Yeah. The most impactful kind of therapist that really, really helped me kind of get through on that deep neurobiological level of trauma 
was a somatic-based therapist and she became a mentor and a friend. And so I went down the path of studying that and doing that work. And so, yes, if I had to choose a therapist, it would be someone that was trained in somatic therapy. Also, for those that are listening that are interested in, you know, EMDR, for someone that has a really good experience with EMDR, that can be really powerful too. And so there are some niches in the therapy world. I don't mean to say like all of the therapy world is crap. There are some really great niches in the therapy world and somatic experiencing and those types of things is high up there on the list of really quality, good stuff. EMDR is eye movement desensitization rapid and reprocessing. Yeah. 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 So it's a thing where you sometimes you do it with vibration and sometimes you do it with eye movement. Basically, you're trying to stimulate cross communication between the two hemispheres in the brain. And the theory is that that actually helps your body release trauma. Um, very effective, um, very new in the last 20 years. Can you explain what somatic therapy entails for someone who doesn't know? In essence, so we have kind of three brains. You know, of course, whenever I talk about the brain, I always say, look, if there's a scientist listening, if there's someone who, you know, there's a neuroscientist listening, I I understand that I'm oversimplifying things, right? The brain is an incredibly complex place. But there are useful generalizations that we can make that are actually practical, that actually help us to affect change in our life. So that's my disclaimer. I understand that I'm oversimplifying things. But if we think about, we have three brains. We have a thinking brain, we have an emotional brain, and we have an instinctual brain. That instinctual brain, which is also tied up with the emotional brain, the limbic system, the autonomic nervous system, and the brainstem, that is 98% of the juice. You know, like we evolved for millions of years. We're very proud of our thinking capacity and our creative capacity as human beings, but that is the latest to come online. And frankly, it's the least, it's incredibly powerful in certain ways, but in other ways, you know, we think, our deeper part of our brain that I'm talking about processes about 40,000 bits of data per second. Our thinking rational brain processes about 40 bits of data per second. So that's 40,000 versus 40. Wow. The magnitude of power is absolutely incomparable. And so the somatic therapies or even the EMDR therapies, what they're going to do is get us down into the structures. They're going to have us do things that are in the structures that will activate and change that deeper part of the brain. But the thinking and the talk therapies and, oh, I just will need to understand my problems and where does it come from? And it came from mom or it came from dad or from my partner or that is all up in the 40 bits of data per second brain. And it's just fighting a losing battle. But the somatic therapies get us deeper by getting into those body sensations, into our breathing patterns, into the imagery that we were just talking about. Those things are all you know, there are ways into the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system, it's called autonomic because it governs everything that's automatic. Our heart rate, our body temperature, all these types of things that like our brain is taken care of 24-7 without us knowing about it. Well, it's a miracle. Right? It's <laughs> totally a miracle. And then one of the really cool things is that there are certain functions of that autonomic nervous system that if we do them consciously, it is like a doorway into that part of the brain. So you breathe, right? You don't have to think about breathing, thankfully, because you forget a million times a day. And if you stop breathing when you forgot about your breath, you'd be dead. You don't have to beat your heart. (laughs) But at the same time, you can also consciously breathe, and then that will start to 
allow you a doorway into the autonomic nervous system. So the same, there's something that monitors the sensations in our body at all times. How do you know when you step out of your warm house into the snowy, snowy weather outside, which it's snowing where I am, how does your body stay at 98.6? Because it's got a thermostat that you're not paying attention to, and it adjusts your body temperature instantly. And so right. there's these things. And so if we start doing some of the things that the autonomic brain does automatically, we get in there, and then we can start to regulate that part of the brain. And then that influences the whole system and it enables our body to heal and thrive without necessarily needing to understand it, needing to know what happened. You know, if I have a cut on my finger, my finger does not care whether it was cut by a piece of glass or a blade of grass or a paper cut. It's going to heal just the same. It doesn't care how it was cut. Right. You know, and so our nervous system has the same capacity to heal as long as we provide it the right conditions. If it's a cut on my finger, you know, I can wash it off and I can keep it clean, but then my body knows how to heal it. The skin comes together in miraculous ways that I don't need to understand. My psyche is the same way. If I regulate my autonomic nervous system, if I get myself into what I call the thriving mode, then healing happens naturally and by itself. And that's really, you know, that's really a big piece of what I learned in somatic therapy work and then I've kind of tied some other things together with that. But we're brilliantly resourceful and resilient, and there's so much that we can do to activate that. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing that you mentioned because our bodies do so much for us every day. And another thing to have gratitude about, you know, my <laughs> body is digesting food right now, and I don't have to think about it unless there's a problem, right? right. And that's when I feel it. That's what the pain is telling me if I have a pain in my stomach, right? right? And I think that's the moment that we're in right now. But right now, it can be easy to feel like with, especially in places that are more locked down with coronavirus, mm -hmm. that a lot of the things that we do to give ourselves comfort mm -hmm. or control over our environment so that we can feel like we have the space to do these things yeah. or to eliminate the stimulus or the trauma or the unhealthy dynamic that we're dealing with, with a roommate or whatever like that, it can feel pretty easy to feel like we've lost control over yeah. our environment right yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a very valid thing that we're all going through, but I think that's why the kind of proactive approach to well-being that you're advocating is important because I think anyone could find themselves somewhat stuck seemingly in their circumstances, even if it's not a global pandemic with major yeah. political unrest and massive yeah. change in the world, even at times that aren't like this, you know, there's always something you could feel limited by. Absolutely. And I have an online curriculum called the inner advantage method. And in lesson one of the inner advantage method, we start right off on the difference between people that develop post-traumatic stress disorder and people that develop post-traumatic growth symptoms. First of all, proof that the negativity bias is rampant in our culture is how many people, more people nowadays have heard of it, but how many people have heard of post-traumatic growth versus how many people have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD? Hmm. We focus on the negative. Right, but post-traumatic growth is a growing field of research about people that 
have gone through adversity and come out the other side better, healthier, happier, and grateful for the adversity. And I'm not talking minor stuff. I'm talking major, real adversity. Are you talking about like World War II, the greatest generation, they call them, because they're the most like happy, well-adjusted people now in their retirement age, some of them. Yeah, and it could be anything. It could be, you know, the horrors of sexual abuse or whatever. It could be anything. And a lot of times people will experience both. They will experience PTSD symptoms, and then that will shift to PTG symptoms. So it's not a black and white. There's a continuum, right? But the dividing line where there is kind of a tipping point is that the difference between people that go on to experience PTG, post-traumatic growth, versus those that stay stuck in post-traumatic stress, PTSD symptoms, is do they experience their adversity as a challenge and an opportunity? They will go on to PTG, post-traumatic growth. If they experience their adversity as an overwhelming threat, they will develop PTSD symptoms. And so this time is a time where oftentimes when we're stressed out and we're in a difficult period like we are right now, people will abandon, and some of those things have been taken away from us, some, you know, with the ability to go to the gym or, you know, connect with other people, have a hug, those things. Yes, I agree that it makes it more challenging, but that's how we have to look at it. We truly have to look at it as a challenging opportunity. How can I grow? How can I thrive anyway? I've played team sports most of my life and appreciate the custom of in the playoffs and in a lot of team sports, the gentlemen will grow beards, their playoff beards. And to me, I have a big beard growing right now, like a lot of people in isolation, but I'm calling it my COVID playoff beard. I'm this doing the same thing with my hair. <laughs> mental health. This is the playoffs of mental health. We need to train more, not less. You know, right. We need to have a better self-care routine, not a worse one. Exactly. And so we can, and the challenge that I put to myself every single day is, how am I going to emerge from COVID healthier and happier than when it began? You talked earlier about growth mindset. That is the growth mindset that I require to get through this and all of the admitted things that suck about it. And that's how I kind of keep my eye on the prize. And it's not about being macho or being in denial of the difficulties or not having empathy for the times when I, you know, feeling anxious or frustrated or sad about the situation. All those things are included in how do I emerge healthier, happier, better, thriving, even though aside from, and especially because COVID is a pain in the ass and sucks a lot. Yeah. You're so right. And I think that segues into something else that I wanted to talk to you about too, because the flip side of that is sort of this like, slap you on the back, pull yourself up by your yeah, bootstraps, yeah. just move yeah. on, just don't be a baby, right? right? And I feel like there's also a trauma that happens from that Yeah, that is hard to overcome. I want to talk about what is actually having a growth mindset and pulling yourself through something difficult and saying, I'm going to train harder, you know, I'm going to yeah. do the Rocky montage and, you know, yeah. like in a healthy way versus <laughs> an unhealthy way. Absolutely. Well, here's the thing. Even though, again, it has become cliche to say so, all growth work that is going to actually be effective needs the foundation of self-acceptance and self-love. And here's why. Because if we are criticizing or punishing or 
or beating ourselves up, then we are activating the survival mode of the brain. So the survival mode of the brain has only three options, fight, flight, and freeze, which you've probably heard of. Fight is anger, frustration, impatience, criticism. Flight is fear, anxiety, worry, doubt. Freeze is hopelessness, helplessness, numbness, depression, apathy, lethargy. And, and so if we're going, oh, suck it up, you're fine, we're invalidating our own experience. We're actually at fight with ourselves. We're fighting ourselves. Right. So that is going to sabotage any of our efforts to improve. So if I say, oh, just go to the gym, you wuss, and suck it up, you're fine, you're actually activating the survival part of the brain that is going to keep you stuck in those experiences of anger, frustration, fear, anxiety, worry, depression. But when we kind of acknowledge and we have self-acceptance and we motivate ourselves through an experience of love or acceptance or of wanting to grow and of being genuine and sincere and kind of right in the middle of neither being denial or macho about it, but also not collapsing against the weight of it and giving up and saying that there's no grit in us, right? So there's a right. balance there that is absolutely essential. And this is something you mentioned earlier that, you know, we've all been conditioned this way, but men and boys in particular. But when you think about like, so say you, you said you have kids. If you go into your kid's bedroom, the kid is having a nightmare and they're saying, daddy, daddy, there's something in the closet. Well, you with your adult brain, are fully aware that there's no monster in the closet. But if you just go, God damn it, there's no monster in the closet. Go back to bed. What's going to happen? The kid right. is freak out even more. They're going to cry even more. You're going to have the absolutely counterproductive experience. It's going to take you longer to get, maybe you're frustrated because you're tired and you want to get back to sleep, but you're actually going to sabotage your own efforts to get back to sleep by exacerbating their condition because you're fighting fight with fight. Mm. excuse me, flight, they're afraid, and you're using fight energy to combat their fear. However, if you come in and go, oh, I see that you're feeling really scared, right? Okay, well, where do you feel that in your body? Why don't you come close to me? Let's give me a hug. Let's breathe together. Let's slow our heart rate down. Let's slow our breath down. Let's soothe. Now, the kid is feeling safe and calm. Now their rational brain can come online when their rational brain actually wasn't working before. And now you can pick them up and you can say, now let's go look in the closet and show you that there's no monster there. And now yeah, they and they're going to kind of hold your hand and be right. a little tentative, but they're like leaning on you a lot. And then they're like, okay, okay, I'll go look, you know, and they're working themselves up to looking in the closet and it's okay because you're there with them. Right. And now they can believe it. They can actually see that there's no monster in the closet. Before, their reticular activating system was so convinced and they were so disturbed emotionally that they couldn't actually perceive, remember belief, perception, experience, they couldn't actually perceive the truth, the reality that there's no monster in the closet. But when their alarm system is turned off and is soothed, now they can actually perceive more accurately. And so mm. now the thing is, is where the analogy goes a step further is this is the same thing that we can do internally because we have an adult brain that is our thinking brain and the middle brain, the emotional brain, the limbic system is actually the equivalent of the toddler brain. So when we are upset, when we are angry, afraid, or depressed, we are activating the toddler brain. 
And therefore, it needs to be dealt with in a similar way. To chastise it, to beat it up, to tell it to suck it up, it's fine, is only going to keep it stuck in that mode. But to say, they're there, I'm with you, I see that you're upset, now let's do the things that we can do with our autonomic nervous system to regulate ourselves so that we can start actually thinking more clearly again and thinking more rationally again and having more creativity and seeing more hope for the future, et cetera. And so that is the middle balance is that we actually have to recognize that whether you want to call it you know, touchy-feely or PC or whatever, it's not about that. It's actually just what is practical. The emotional brain is our toddler brain. And if you yell at a toddler when they're upset, they get more upset. If you connect with the toddler when they're upset, they're actually really good at moving on quite quickly. You know, for those people that don't have kids, they kids get over things super quickly if they're allowed to. And, and yeah, so, it's gonna be like turn on a dime. <laughs> turn on a dime, and all of a sudden they're happy and playing again. Well, we have that same capacity. If we treat ourselves with a sort of kindness and respect, then we actually are really good at moving on and getting back on track with things. But when we beat ourselves up thinking that that is the best way to kind of control our behavior, we're actually doing something that is counterproductive and self-sabotaging. Right. Yeah. It's this idea of reparenting yourself. Absolutely. So just as you would soothe a yeah. loved one or a especially a young loved one, this, there's a part of us on the inside that needs that too. Absolutely. And I think people bristle at the idea of the inner child for some reason, um, like almost like it's a critique or a criticism of their, you know, developedness or their maturity. Uh, when the truth is, I think every single person on this planet can find themselves throwing a temper tantrum at some time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even the most mature, developed person, if you throw enough at things at them, you're going to get them off their equilibrium. There's going to be that part of you inside that just wants to cry or scream or kick or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, this self-judgment is really like one of the first things that has to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so not helpful. Yeah. You know, and it's not like you're going to fall into some sense of amorality. If you're the kind of person who already cares about other people and, you know, has a pretty good sense of I want to be a good person, turning off your inner critic for a minute is not going to cause you to just suddenly go and like do terrible things. Right. <laughs> it's and quite the opposite, actually. No, exactly quite the opposite, because actually when you turn off that inner self-critic and you're able to get yourself soothed and regulated and into the thriving mode, you actually activate the part of the brain that is responsible for empathy, compassion, and wisdom. You don't have access to that. You actually, the opposite is true. It is the people that are tightly wound. That is when quote unquote perversion starts to happen or when things start to go wrong is, you know, the people that do harm to others, it's not because they are easy on themselves. It's because they are super hard on themselves. If someone is angry and aggressive and violent outwardly, you can almost guarantee they are 10 times harder on themselves. Um, Precisely. Or even critical. If someone's super yeah. critical, I like to imagine, wow, like I wonder what's going on in their own head. It's not a pleasant place to be, I tell you that. It's literally a reflection. I mean, there's a book called The Four Agreements, and mm -hmm. one of them is don't take anything personally. So nine times out of 10, someone else's reaction towards you has more to do with them than it has to do with you at no all. Doubt. No yeah. doubt. No doubt. Yeah, so that's a brilliant, you know, that's a brilliant insight that you made about reparenting yourself because that's kind of the name of the game and there is a fine line where therapy also can go wrong is that we start getting into 
the stories about what that toddler brain is saying. And then again, if we get enamored by the story and we start thinking about the moon, maybe there really is a monster in the closet, then we are going to stay stuck in there. It's a balance. It's about recognizing and meeting the situation where it's at and then soothing it and then bringing it along so that it can see a greater possibility or a more accurate truth or a higher wisdom or a higher capacity or potential. But it's also not about going, well, or well, tell me about that monster. Is that monster's does it, is it growling? Is it got what do its eyes look like? Because then if you start thinking about the monster, you just are gonna stay stuck in that dark, scary place, right? And so mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're gonna reprocess it, right? If you're actually in a space mm-hmm. and you have enough time to go in and see the monster right. and come to terms with the monster and realize what it represents. That could be productive, but I I've noticed that therapy sessions are pretty short, (laughs) especially if they're insurance covered. That's like five zero minutes, fifty minutes. Yeah, and you know it's oftentimes okay. Well, I'll see you next week, and then the whole week you're there. You just open the monster closet and you're looking at the monster for a week, and you're like, "What do I do with this monster?" Right. You know, and I'm supposed to go to work. Right. (laughs) I always felt like that was weird. I'm like, whoa, like this is not an easy process to go through. I think you really need some commitment if you're going to go there. Yeah. And there's two important points that I'd like to highlight about that is one is this is one of the main reasons why I switched to being a coach is because the 50 minute therapy hour is invented by people that have nothing to do with knowing anything about how to help people feel better or heal or thrive, right? And it's completely unrealistic. It has nothing to do with anything that is natural. So when people now hire me as a coach, it's not based on an hourly session. It's based on three-month, six-month, or one-year contracts so that if something is up and I keep more freedom in my schedule so that sometimes I'll have some periods with clients where I talk to them every day. And then I'll have some periods where we only talk once a week. You know, But we have that flexibility in that contract because I'm now free from the insurance-based therapy hour. So that's one point. The other point though that is extremely important that you're making about processing is this. When we're in survival mode, when we're in fight, flight, or freeze, the memories that we experience are stored in the part of the brain where they can continue to be triggered in the future because we evolved that way as a survival mechanism. So if my nervous system is overwhelmed, my memories are going to be stored in the amygdala. The amygdala is the alarm switch. That makes sense because if we thought something was dangerous once, we want to be able to be triggered by it again in the future so that we can avoid that danger. When we are not overwhelmed, when we are in the thriving mode, our memories are stored in the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is like a filing cabinet. The filing cabinet is organized, it's neat, it's chronological. So I can, in this moment, open the filing cabinet, look back on a memory and say, that happened then, but this is now and it is over and I can close the filing cabinet and now it's no longer able to be triggered. It's a memory that is in my experience, but it's completely processed. So that is what EMDR or somatic therapy, those types of things, they're basically, what they're basically doing is moving traumatic memories from the amygdala into the hippocampus. But the thing is, the hippocampus memory storage is shut down if we are not in a regulated state. So a lot of therapists that don't know better think they're getting a positive result 
because their client has a big cathartic experience in front of them. They cry, you know, and they say, great, feel your emotions. But if someone is in a huge emotional experience, they're actually now adding more material to the amygdala because their hippocampus is not active. So if we're mm-hmm. going to reprocess something, the, the skill of a, th- of a good therapist is that they're going to balance that line and they're going to maybe bring you into material that is upsetting, but then help you get regulated so that material can move from amygdala to hippocampus. So now it will no longer be affecting your present moment experience. Does that make sense? Of course. Yes, absolutely. And I wonder about reprocessing because I know a hypnotherapy technique is to take a traumatic memory that's, let's say, fearful, like getting bitten by a dog Mm -hmm. and replacing the emotion with a different one. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't think this is what you do, but I think it's interesting, the idea that you could say, okay, we're going to see that memory, but this time, instead of being afraid of the dog, we're going to laugh. And then we're going to put a clown nose on the dog and it's going to be funny. And I like, to me, that's fascinating. Like the ways that the brain mm-hmm. can change its point of view on an experience, you know, this idea of like, I think from what you were talking about, like reframing an experience and mm-hmm. like putting a growth mindset around it. Mm-hmm. But even to the point where people are able to like sort of hack into the brain and go, okay, we're going to make this experience funny. Yep. Like, um, it's so strange to me, um, yep. but it's also pretty, pretty wonderful. A really relevant example of something like that. Again, coming back to the kid having the nightmare. And this is something that I did with my kids a handful of times, and then we didn't need to do it anymore because they stopped having nightmares and they do it themselves. Is I would come in and teach them and we'd talk them through it. I would help them slow their breath down. And but then we would bring up the and say, so okay, now that you're regulated, why don't you tell me about what the dream content was? And then we would say they would show me they would say maybe, oh, I saw this scary yada yada yada. And then I would say, well, can you see it with underwear on its head? And then, and, you know, and then you see it doing a big fart and, you know, and then they start laughing, right? Now they've completely actually changed the storage of that memory. Instead of that image being stored in their brain as one that can scare them again in the future, it's now stored in their brain as something funny and non-threatening. And so now they do this all the time with their own even with their own waking state images or thoughts or their dream states or whatever, is that you can go in there and alter them and change the way that they're going to be categorized and stored. And that has a tremendous influence on those underlying beliefs that are influencing your perception that influences your experience. And so it's really cool to see, and kids are so good at it because they're open to the creativity and the imagination thing. They don't think, oh, it's just my imagination. It's still very quite real to them. But it's a brilliant example of how we could do the same thing as adults. Speaking of dysregulated nervous systems, so I'm out, you know, in this new place and it's been pretty peaceful. And all of a sudden I start hearing voices and I see someone stopping on the trail, noticing me. And there's all these helicopters around and my uh, tiger detection system just turned on. Nice. Because people's voices are raised. And I hear something and I'm like, oh, wow, I should be aware of my surroundings all of a sudden. I'm not in the recording studio that's Mm -hmm. usually safe, except for when there's COVID there. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it brings me back to if I get to it, hopefully I don't have to move. But to this point I had about anxiety, where it seems like people who have been through traumatic experiences uh, who've grown up in challenging environments or who just in, in general tend to have sensitive nervous systems 
can find themselves in a physiological heightened state Absolutely. of constant uh, vigilance. Yeah. And that is also a symptom of P PTSD. And so my theory is that anxiety seems to be this sort of constant loop back between your body's heightened nervous system response and your emotional memory. Mm -hmm. So I wonder about that. I wonder as we're treating anxiety, if things like yoga and somatic therapy can help to re-regulate Mm -hmm. in a different way than we've become accustomed to treating anxiety, maybe in addition to the way we've been treating anxiety. I wonder if you've noticed that. Well, yeah. I mean, again, I would say in a different way because activating the body's natural healing mechanisms as opposed to, here's the thing, with I mentioned sprouting and pruning earlier, but when we're going, I hate anxiety. I don't want to have anxiety. How can I cure anxiety? How can I regulate my anxiety? what we are focused on is anxiety. And that is therefore strengthening the neural network of anxiety. But when we are focused on how do I regulate my nervous system? How do I feel healthy? How do I thrive? How do I slow my breath down? How do I get into my body? How do I do this yoga posture that, you know, whatever the modality that you like is, then what we're doing is we're actually now sprouting those network of healing and thriving. So Another oversimplification is, is that the, the survival mode that I talked about is when the sympathetic nervous system is dominant. The sympathetic nervous system, SNS, is responsible for fight, flight, or freeze, and anxiety is flight. When the thriving mode that I'm speaking about is parasympathetic nervous system dominant, and that is responsible for healing, resting, digesting, relaxing, connectivity, creativity, happiness, joy, etc. So when we get our brain into the thriving mode, one of the functions of the parasympathetic nervous system is healing. Healing happens by itself. Healing is natural. And so when we are focused on the solution, we are actually doing the work to heal the past memories and the anxiety and the trauma. But when we are focused on the problem, we are activating it. This is a huge difference between the way I work with people and typically what you're going to find in therapy is what are we focused on creating the environment where healing is more likely or are we focused on the problem? And so another analogy that I like is the garden. If you want your garden to grow and thrive, it's up to us to create the conditions. We can till the soil, we can add fertilizer, uh, compost, we can you know, make sure it has the right amount of water and sun, and we can pull the weeds and we can plant beautiful seeds. But I don't make the garden grow. Nature does that. The same is with our body. I can provide the conditions for healing, but nature heals. My body heals, my mind heals, my psyche heals, the same way my heart beats and my food is digested and I breathe. But it's up to me to create the optimal conditions, especially if I've had traumatic experience in the past. But if I create those optimal conditions, I trust that the flowers will bloom, the vegetables will grow, my psyche will heal if I allow it to. And that's, to me, a big difference in what you're going to find in most things out there in terms of how we would treat something like anxiety. Thank you. I am really distracted at the moment, and I'm realizing why, but I don't need to definitely tell this story. I think everything's okay. Yeah. It's also a good idea to take you to honor your animal brain that wants to look around and say, is everything okay? You know, and then 
recognize that your alarm system got tripped and it's great. The alarm system is designed to go off more times than it needs to. If your smoke detector only went off after your house was already burnt down, it would be a crappy smoke detector. And that's the same with our alarm system. So you can look around and say, okay, thanks for sending me a message, but actually we're, we're good this time. You know, it's interesting because I'm going to continue to remain watchful, but I think I've I understand what it is, is there's loud male voices. Mm -hmm. They're obviously having a good time once I took the time to listen. So I can kind of rationally say, okay, this is just people enjoying themselves and being loud. Right. But for me, that's a trigger. Yeah. Because I was bullied. So when someone's drinking and they're having a loud conversation and things are getting a little belligerent or boisterous or things like that, to me, my warning systems go off. Nice. Which I think is a weird thing, right? You say you work with a lot of men. Mm-hmm. and try and overcome that stereotype of it's not all touchy-feely, you know, whatever. I feel like I'm the other side of that. I feel like I'm the one who was touchy-feely. And growing yeah. up as a child in the 80s, that was not okay. Totally. You know, there's something wrong with you. If you were sensitive, if you were soft, if you were kind, if you were girly was the word. And it's not even true. Like I looked at that and I've done a lot of work around that, like going, no, actually, you know, what we have within the idea of masculine or maleness right now is actually out of balance. It's kind of leaning over a lot. (laughs) Completely out of balance. Yeah, totally. I couldn't agree with you more. I do want to kind of acknowledge and recognize that you've been a little triggered. And so being able to intellectually understand that, remember, that's the 40 bits of data per second brain. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> 40,000 bits of data per second brain is maybe still... It's putting my shoes on right now. <laughs> yeah, is maybe still active. So that's where you then start going into the somatic therapy world of where do you notice it in your body? Are you willing to just breathe into that and feel that and just watch that and let that river open up, let that energy open up, let it flow and get your autonomic nervous system regulated as well as your intellectual brain, your central nervous system. So, well, because you know what I realize as I reflect on my own work around this is going, well, if I were reparenting myself as a child, I would realize that a lot of the experiences resulted from my reaction. Mm-hmm. So, if someone were to come up to me at this point, how I handle myself and stay out of fight, flight, or freeze mm-hmm. will potentially de escalate the situation much better than if I just immediately respond with fight, which would be the default. Or if I looked really, really scared and and helpless, that might also say, well, I should steal your computer then because it would be really easy to get away with, right? Right. So it's funny. Like, that's what I've really been reflecting on. And I, I meant to ask you this earlier, but it's almost like you mentioned fight, flight, or freeze. It's like, that's a part of our national consciousness right now. So many people are in fight. Mm -hmm. And so many people are just in freeze and it's like this huge trauma bomb that's gone off, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a fine line to what you said. I think it's so insightful and so empowering to say that a large part of it has to do with your reaction. And at the same time, I want to be clear, and I don't think you were saying it this way, but I want to be clear for listeners is like, it's also there's also a way in which people can go down a track of what is like kind of like victim blaming and saying it's the victim's responsibility for managing the bully. And so I just want to be clear that I'm not saying that, but I am saying that we have a tremendous amount more empowerment than we typically recognize that we do in managing our own reactions and regulating our own nervous systems. And that if there is a problem, 
to deal with, the thriving mode is actually a better problem solver than the survival mode. The survival mode actually puts on tunnel vision, it puts on blinders, it focuses on the worst possible scenario, and it exaggerates the negative by five, as we've talked about. And it's not actually making contact with reality. It's not actually seeing the whole picture. Now, if you're in a situation, if any of us are in a situation where our life is actually in danger, survival mode is awesome. We love it. I'm grateful for it. I want my adrenaline and cortisol to kick in. I want my creative thinking brain to shut down. I want to go into instinctual mode. And we will. <laughs> that It's 40,000 to 40. That will take over if we need it to. But if we don't need it to, if it's not literally a tiger jumping at our throat, we're going to be much better off if we regulate our nervous system so that we can think clearly about how to manage the situation in the best way possible. And that's really all we're talking about. It's not talking about victim blaming. It's actually talking about focusing back on your empowerment as opposed to we can't control what the outer world does, but we can have a great degree of control on our inner experience and then how we interact with that outer world. Thank you. That's a really good point. And the thing that I always try and remember when someone else is going through something like that and they're reacting, as I was just, is that, you know, okay, if that person is reacting, they're mm -hmm. probably in some sort of traumatic response. Mm -hmm. So they're not in possession of their own better faculties to think about all the different things, right? Sometimes people, when they respond poorly, if they respond angrily at you, if they snap at you, or if they shut you out of those things, it does say a lot about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it's not, oh, it's not usually personal. <laughs> right. And that's so. the opportunity of the moment. Remember, we talked about the PTSD versus the PTG. And so if we can activate a type of growth consciousness or a growth awareness that recognizes that in those moments when I'm triggered, those are the opportunities. Those are the gems. Because if I can regulate myself when I'm triggered, I now move all of that memory and information into the hippocampus, where in the future, it will no longer trigger me. Right. So that's actually the opportunity for freedom and growth. Well, you know, and it's going to be interesting because I'm not going to remember the last 15 minutes of this conversation. Because I'm realizing, like, I'm going, okay, so, like, I'm calming down my parasympathetic nervous system with tools that I have, and I'm realizing, okay, if I rub my feet, nice, I can get a little bit back into my body. Nice. I can slow my breathing. I can start nice. to regulate and go, okay, you know, the threat is passed, and it maybe wasn't a threat, but it was okay that I was looking at that. And it was funny, because I didn't intend to go to this part of the conversation, so we'll see if it's even worth listening to. But, you know, like I said, I, I think that's a very important thing to note. I am not going to remember... I'm going to listen to that part and go, oh, that's what I said. Right. right. <laughs> because I was activated. And so often when we're having fights with our spouse yeah. or, you know, struggles with our children or there's something going on that's intense for us, we're, we're really not acting out of a conscious awareness in yeah. that moment. We're on autopilot. Yes. And the autopilot can only do what the autopilot's been programmed to do. It can't do anything new or different or potentially skillful. Now, we'll see what happens down the line with artificial intelligence. But for now, programming is, it, it can only do what it's already been programmed to do. And that's the same way our brain works, is when we go into a reactive mode, the only possible thing that we can do is a combination of what we've already done. And by definition, growth is to do something new, is to venture into the unknown. And so that does take courage. It does feel like a risk. It feels like a chance. Okay, 
I'm going to, I'm going to think, feel, and act differently today to the same stimulus as I would have yesterday. That's actually what change is. It's becoming new. And we are natural beings. We are part of nature. And nature is growing and changing at all times. And if we are to be in harmony with larger cycles of nature, we are to be growing and changing. Not because we're trying to shame or get rid of or hate what we were, but because that is just what our human design is to explore, discover, learn, grow, and create. And to and and change and and opening up to what is next in a way that is new and fresh and unknown is actually intrinsic to who we really are. But our ego grabs onto the story of who we were and says, oh, this is the best way to stay safe. Just keep Groundhog Day, reacting the same thoughts, the same feelings, the same actions, and we'll just stay stuck in a loop. And that's where that agency comes in. That's where pathology comes in. That's where suffering comes in, is when things stay stuck. But when things move, we're good. I'm so glad you said that. Last quick thing is, yeah, I hope you do keep in the last 20 minutes because I think it's been really beautiful and really courageous of you to kind of just be willing to admit this is what was going on for me and for your listeners to hear that there's no shame in this. This happens to all of us on a regular basis. And there's not only is there nothing wrong with it, but this is the beautiful moments of growth opportunity in our life that we have all the time. Well, not only that, but my response to look out for my surroundings is healthy. We don't live in a world that's perfectly safe. So there are certain evolutionary things that are there for a reason. And a lot of times when they go awry, it's because we now live in a manicured world and the dangers are not clear and present. It's not that there's a tiger in the bushes uh, or a coyote in the case of where I am. We don't have tigers here. But, um, you know, the, the, the fact is the, the existential threat is the speeding ticket. It's, is the insurance going up? Right. It is the fact that we don't know if we're going back to work or if things are reopening or what the world's going to look like. It's, yeah. it's so like, it's that 40 bit. It's, 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 it's problems that can only be solved in the 40 bit part of the brain yeah. that are activating the 40,000 bit part. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where the real work is, like to understand that, you know, there is no difference to to get to know these brain systems and how they work and develop tools. Because like, as you said, once you're activated, you're yeah. only going to do what you've done. I mean, in martial arts, that's what we learned. You train these movements of self-defense so that when you're activated, you don't freeze. Right. You know exactly what to do to defend yourself. And it's the same kind of thing, like, you know, me rubbing my feet. I've been practicing my de-escalation or self-regulation of those things. So it's like once I had a chance to assess, it was like, okay, like, it seems like it's cool. Yeah. I could actually bring myself down. Nice. Nice and job. And become aware again. And that's been, you know, thank you. I, I don't, like, I only say that to share that because it, it works. You can do it. It's not something like, I only did it because I had to, really. I think the only other choice was to stay stuck in that loop, right? Right. right. And, you know, I also want to point out, thank you for saying what you said, because it's also, it's not, it's, 
if if you're growing as, as nature does, it's actually more like a spiral. You know, yeah. the growth is you do come back around to, to winter. You do have those dark seasons where there's not very much sun and that's normal. Mm-hmm. You're going to come back around to that, but you're, you're now, you've now moved to a new place, even though it seems like you're revisiting the same thing. You're not because this time you get to try it a little bit different. Absolutely. Absolutely. This time you get to practice something new. And I think just looking at life as a practice, mm-hmm. you know, in that sense makes it easier. Like, yeah. I think also you said another important thing, looking at life with creativity Creativity. as well. And you said like the perfect thing, like that creativity can't exist in an absence of safety. Right, right. So your society is not going to flourish, grow and do these new things that it needs to do. If society is afraid, all we're going to do is repeat the same old shit that we've been doing. All it can do. That's what we're going through right now. It's like everybody's afraid. And so it's like, everybody's like, how do we just go back? How do we just, let's just close all the doors, let's revert, right? Right. Let's go back to what we know, you know, and let's, let's all close our doors. Let's, you know, just let's band together in whatever small little tribes we can. And I think that's, you know, that's a, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, uh, it's endemic panda. It's a, it's an indicator of kind of what we're going through collectively in a sense. And, and so as people can start to go, no, 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 no. Like, like, yeah, a lot's going on and this is, but everything's going to be okay. Like we're going to be okay because I mean, look at, look at the pandemic of, you know, 1917, look at these other places in history where we've gone through a lot more than we're going through right now. And like, but the important message is, not that that was harder and you're a wuss. The important message is people got through it. Yep. And we got back to something beautiful. And, and Right. And even hopefully to higher ground. And, you know, every single generation has their world is ending story. And uh, it hasn't happened yet. So, and I'm not saying that we don't need to take care of the earth, and, but we are faced with some things that seem to be like, wow, but this really is different. This really is worse. Um, and yet every single generation also tells themselves that. So, yes. um, and then it really comes down to, there's a balance between understanding the collective and the individual. And on an individual level, it is really up to us to recognize like, okay, in this moment, all the stories that I have about what's going on in the world, they might be valid. They might be real, but in this moment, you know, you're outside, but I'm not, I'm in shelter. I have warmth around me. I have a refrigerator full of food. All my survival needs are actually met. There is no, there is no rational reason for me to be responding to the world, to be responding right now with fight, flight, or freeze energy. There is no tiger at my throat. Like you said, there are problems that are of the, that are to be solved from the 40 bit data part of the brain. But the 40-bit data part of the brain was designed to be shut down if I'm in survival mode. Because if a tiger's coming, evolutionarily, we are designed to say, I don't want to think, should I go left or should I go right? So I'm going to shut down that creative part of my brain if I'm in survival mode. So in order to solve the problems that we need to solve for our world that are the creative problems of the 40-bit part of the brain, we have to regulate our nervous system so that we can access our higher thinking creative capacities that are purposefully shut down when we are upset, when we are in fight, flight, or freeze, when we are angry, afraid, or depressed. Not only that, but when the problem is other people, 
and society and our collective response, getting more angry is not going to calm the toddler. <laughs> right? No way. That's not what we need right now. Like, and I, I was reflecting on that when something really big was going on. I thought, I don't know what, you know, famous person I thought of, but I was realizing that the tendency when things get really serious mm-hmm. is for wise people to get really calm. Mm-hmm. And those are the people you want in a crisis. Yeah. You don't want to like pontificate and like yell about this and get, oh my gosh, like, well, you know, you don't want to do that. If there's really a threat, you know, especially in this collective society that we're in, the leaders who get quiet, who survey the situation, and who go, okay, that's the kind of person you want to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of person I want around when something really happens. <laughs> right. right. And yeah, not all of us are meant for leadership on a wide scale, but we all have the power to be the leaders in our own lives, to be the dominant influence in our own lives, and to have an, and have an influence on the environment around us. Whether And that is really, you know, to me, what it's all about is like, you know, I actually look at it as my responsibility because I do recognize that I am, I also fully acknowledge that I'm in a position of relative privilege, both by birth and opportunities and things like that, and by where I live and by the color of my skin and all these things. So I actually believe that it is a responsibility of mine to stay in a regulated state during this crisis and this pandemic. I have food. I can go outside and get fresh air. I can exercise. I am not being systematically and racially oppressed. These are all, so it's a responsibility of mine to stay, to recognize that I am one of the people that needs to be the influencer of, okay, everybody, let's take a deep breath. Let's, you know, how are we going to get through this? We're going to be okay. Because I have the capacity to activate tools. I have the capacity to use my knowledge that I've learned, to, to use my gifts and my skills as a way to uplift others and benefit others and to have a ripple effect and to recognize that you know there are people that have a, a more difficult challenge than I have. But again, I don't want to shame myself for the things that are difficult in my life. I've, I've been through a, a number of very, very challenging things. But at the same time, I want to be in a position of power where I am, like you said, one of the people that can take a deep breath and say, okay, all right, I see that you're freaking out right now. Let me hold your hand and let's get through this together. And so or empowerment even to maybe center it a little bit more inside because that's, I think you're right. And that's, I mean, just to address the idea of privilege for a second, it's a privilege for me that I live in a place where I can sit in the middle of a dry river and not worry about someone coming to harm me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I live in a place where that's actually a lot less likely than many other places in the world. That's a privilege. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't mean that I'm worse than someone else. It doesn't mean that I'm better than anyone else. It's literally something that is a part of my world that has n- almost nothing to do with me. I just happen to be born in this place, and this happens to be the conditions that I've inherited. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So we can challenge that theory of meritocracy, right? Where, <laughs> you know, certainly. And, you, and at the same time, also, you've done things to take advantage of those opportunities. You've done, I mean, clearly from the things you're telling me, you've done a lot of growth work. You've studied a lot. You're very articulate. So you've, you've also done things to activate some of the benefits that you've been born into. 
that's like, okay, what conditions do I have? Like I wanted to get into music and I was like, I could sit here and lament the fact that my family is not in music and I don't know where the opportunity is and blah, blah, blah. And if I just pick their career because they're really well off in their career. But right. I said, you know, I chose to say, okay, well, no, I'm born into this family that actually gives me this opportunity to explore the things I like to do. Yeah. So I'm going to take that and make that an opportunity that someone else may not have. Yeah. And so I take that in every day of what I do. And I have this heart of like, man, if I can, if I can encourage someone else to find their own thing that they want to do and be the person in their life who says, yeah, you could totally do that. I'm going to make that opportunity to, if I, if it's helpful, because to me, it's not about like, well, yeah, I mean, I could have been a successful stunt man and I could have made a lot of money. I didn't want to do that. Mm. And so I started at the bottom in music. And so I could have just say, well, it's not fair that I have all this opportunity to, let's say I have a, a place to have a studio, for example, that's not fair. You know, I shouldn't do that. I should just start right. like completely on my own. 100%. It's like, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this, but I feel like people get into this all or nothing thinking about it. And thank you for acknowledging. I mean, that's that was an intentional choice on my part. And and now in this world where things are getting slowly taken away, like, you know, I don't have access to my studio right now. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of turmoil between family members over politics that I really don't want to get caught up in the middle of, but it's just a part of life. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, gosh, like the beginning of the month, we didn't know if we were going to have a country. Mm -hmm whoa, like those things that we took for granted. And I think it's causing people to look at it going like, wow, we have a lot to appreciate. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things that we have that we, we need to steward. We need to take gratitude over mm -hmm. um, in our world and really just realize how lucky we are. And like I said, not in a way to judge yourself and go, oh, well, see, you're so lucky. It's like, that's what it is. It's just being with it, being like, okay, I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. <laughs> I'm going to be the best Stephen Levitt that I can find out how to be. It's the acorn and the oak tree analogy. Every acorn has the capacity to become an oak tree, but not all acorns do become oak trees. Some acorns get eaten by squirrels. Some acorns end up on the cement and get run over by cars. What we can do as human beings is we can nurture our acorn and we can put it in fertile soil and we can give it water and sunshine, we can create the conditions that make it more likely to become an oak tree. Hmm. But we don't make ourselves into oak trees. Nature does that. It's natural for us to grow and thrive. And when we grow and thrive and we become an oak tree, it's also natural for us to be abundant. The oak tree gives off millions of acorns that could become a whole forest if provided the right conditions. We don't need to try to be beneficial. By becoming an oak tree, we are beneficial. We create wood, yeah. we create environments for bugs and for birds and for kids to put a swing on or whatever it is. And so our, and then where the analogy breaks is that we're not just becoming oak trees. Stephen is the only Stephen that will ever be. And the world misses out if you do not become the oak tree of Stephen because there will never be that type of oak tree again. And the world misses out if Michael does not become the, if Michael does not blossom and flourish and thrive and drop my acorns so that other people, so squirrels can eat them and, and other people can benefit or a forest can be produced. And yeah, and so it is in our design, it is already inherent in us to become an oak tree. 
but where we are responsible, where the empowerment is, is the conditions that we place our acorn in and how we cultivate those conditions. That's amazing. Oh my gosh, that sums up the entire episode. <laughs> um, I'd like to indulge a conversation about your wife and creativity in general and being partnered with a creative, but I'm also mindful of your time. So I wanted to ask first before I took you there, if that's something you have time for. Sure. I'll try not to get in too much trouble speaking on behalf of my wife, but yes, let's well, go. Actually, that was one of the reasons I started the show was because creatives are confusing and it was a growth process for me as someone who works with creatives. I'm a music producer, so I'm almost like a coach mm -hmm. for musicians. And so, you know, making music is a very personal process. A lot of us get into writing to work through our feelings and things like that. And I've noticed commonalities with creatives. We all do certain frustrating things. We have some sort of processes that just they work for us, but we don't understand why. And it's a big process of going through and accepting that about yourself. Like I don't work a nine to five. Mm -hmm. I don't like sometimes if I want to create, if I sit down, it doesn't have, but then if it's just like I'm in the shower, it'll come out. Like that's a very universal experience, but all of us have family members as creatives who are like, well, how come you can't just do this? Or how come you couldn't, you know, like people who don't get it, people who don't understand. So I'm asking you from your perspective, like, would you consider yourself a creative? And also you mentioned that your wife is a creative. So tell me a little bit about what she does and what it's like to be in a marriage with a, another creative. I'm so fascinated by that topic. Right on. Well, first, yes. And I'll just only touch briefly on the first question that you raised in order about, do I consider myself a creative? And I'd say, yes, I think actually the interpretation and the way in which I have taken information from science, from psychology, from spirituality, from my own trauma, and the way that I've put it together in this curriculum that I created, the inner advantage method, and the creative way in which I work with people that is really unique. It's neither therapy, and it's also not just like typical coaching either. And to me, that's all creative, right? And there I have my moments. I even said it to my wife last night. She's like, well, why are you doing that right now? I was like, because the idea is here right now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and so that's to answer your first question. I think all human beings are creative and actually what I've learned as and what I've experienced as the human design is exploring, discovering, learning, growing, and creating. And creating is actually the kind of pinnacle of our humanity. And the greatest creation that we all can create is the masterpiece of our life. And I believe that life is an art. And to live life well is actually to be creative. And the canvas is our day-to-day -day experience. And, and so then being married to my wife, my wife is an amazing musician, right? And I'm like, I'm the dude who broke up the band. I'm Yoko. Uh, <laughs> my wife was in a really cool band called Fuga, and they were a, a funk, ska, rock, cumbia kind of fusion of excellence that just... Wow, you, I'm going to look that up. You could not sit still listening to this band. And I came into the picture, and this is a family band, her and her brother and some friends. And my wife is also Mexican-American, and I came in as the white guy who was like, basically... We got married and moved off to Thailand for a number of years. The band broke up. The brother was none too pleased with me. And, um, but now I've, as my wife and I have got into, in some ways, typical family living. We have three kids and 
they're young and she had to really reorient her musical lifestyle in order to mm. in order to embrace that part of herself which was a choice it was an empowered choice on her part and she didn't want to live life on tour anymore and she wanted to have this other experience of life but what i've seen has been really difficult for her is like if she is not creating if she is not making music basically on a daily basis she wilts like a flower and right she and really she wilts like a flower and she's got a lot of tools and a lot of skills and a lot of resources so like she's into a lot of things that i'm into in terms of you know spiritual work and psychology work and being really as healthy and happy as she can be but that's like something that like she can't slash nor should it be overridden like every once in a while of course life happens and she can't get her time in the studio right but it's actually unnatural and that's something that I've come to see is, is like, we need to make this a priority that she should not just be happy without music in her life. Like, like that, like music is so intrinsically a part of who she is that it needs to be provided space for. And as a mom with three kids and during a pandemic and kids on online schooling and things like that, it's challenging oh my gosh. and I'm busy and I'm working. And so what we basically have is like at the end of my quote unquote work day um, is, you know, at least five days a week. We're pretty consistent about it. Then she goes off down into the basement into her little recording area and is able to have at least an hour, a solid hour by herself. And trust me, that does not feel like enough to her, but it's what it's what we can do right now. That's the compromise that we've come to. But it's really I've seen it more as like it's not just a preference for her. It's an absolute necessity. It's vitality. Well, and so good that you acknowledge that because I feel like a lot of conflict arises for people when either someone tries to say, okay, you just got to get over this. Mm -hmm. Or more often than not, it's the person themselves who are saying, I need to get over this. Right. Like, I need to get this out of my life because it's just, it's not succeeding in the way I want. And my, my partner deserves better. And I want to be a good wife or husband. And, you know, let me just deny this part of myself. And that never goes well, <laughs> I don't think. No, it doesn't. And she's done a great job too. I also like, we've talked a lot about like the the starving or the suffering artist motif and how actually that we believe philosophically that that's actually a limitation on creativity. And that there's yes. another step yes. beyond that where you can become actually really healthy and you make even better music, you know, and you can and you can still be prosperous and that's okay. And you don't need to hold on to your suffering as your muse. Um, yeah. And so I've seen her actually, you know, and she's done some things more power to her that have really helped make it more possible. Like, so she went she generated kind of like a, an online music lesson thing where she's, you know, she has a handful of students that she, she's a great teacher and she is really great with teaching kids. And so she teaches music lessons and then all of that income she uses. And that's kind of our deal is like, you know, she can use a hundred percent. She gets to use a hundred percent of her income from music lessons to put back into her recordings. And that wow. was like at the beginning where I didn't maybe get it so much. And I was like, and we were arguing and things were maybe more stressful for us financially. And I'm like, wait, this doesn't make sense. Like you're telling me that I have to bust my ass 50 hours a week working. We can barely pay our mortgage. And you're going to like spend $2,000 to record an album that maybe 
you know, a handful of people are going to listen to. Like that didn't make sense to me. And she was like, but you don't understand. Like I have to create it and it has to get out there and it has to interact with other people. And by the way, more than a couple of people now listen to her music. And so <laughs> that was actually kind of a jerk thing for me to say at the time. And, and so, but, but she's like, it's more than just me having time to play music by myself. There has, there's a dynamism that comes with sharing it with other people. And, and yeah. I, I've grown because I've actually learned that, you know, even doing things like this, like this feels very dynamic and creative to me and it's very nurturing and nourishing. And I get to now see like, oh, this is what she means. Like there's something alive about performing, about sharing your creation that feeds it. And it has nothing to do with vanity or like wanting to be famous or popular or anything like that. That's not what it's about. It's about right. the exchange. And so this is me being Steven right now. Yeah. This is, I have to be doing this. Right. And you know, it was funny because podcasting for me was this side thing that became such a passion of mine because I'd kind of burn out on music for other people. And, uh, yeah, so I think you're right. And it's so good that she knew to advocate for herself for that because, you know, like that could build a lot of resentment in a relationship, right? And and like and really early on, and now one of the things that I do is like we, we went through some rough times in our marriage, right? And now one of the things that I actually do professionally is this thing called the relating revolution, which is a group for teaching people how to refine and optimize their neurology, biology, and chemistry so that they can rebuild the love and trust in their marriage. And so this was part of what was difficult at our beginning point. It was like, yeah, there was resentment. I was like, I am doing all this work and you're spending money on what? You know, and so it made it easy for me when she was like, okay, okay, well, I'm going to do this music lesson, this music lesson, this music lesson, and I'm going to fund my own music stuff. And now if I were if I were hanging on to my resentment, I could have said, well, wait, that could still go into the wee pot and you could be earning money that could help us pay the electric bill, right? But that was where I was like, okay, my side of the compromise is to draw the line there and say, no, that's wonderful. That's a blessing. And I can still carry this other side of it and let her have this and not let, let man, I don't, it's not about let, we're equal. <laughs> and so that's what we have decided is a fair kind of arrangement. Like she contributes to the way I make money by doing all the things that I don't do that don't make money. Right. And so yeah. she, that's the we part. That's her part of paying the bills and things like that. And my part of producing, of helping her explore her creative life and create music and record music is that I say, great, then I will take care of these bills and you take that money that you make on your music lessons and you invest it back in your own music. And so that's been a nice compromise that we've come to that I think works for both of us. Well, and kudos to our partners because the people, the, the people in our lives who are our patrons, in essence, you know, the people who, who support us emotionally, give us stability and financially and those kind of things, like, thank you. Yeah. It is such an important part of a creative life is, as we were talking about earlier, creating that safety yeah. so that the creativity can happen. Right. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Very few of us creatives can create that alone. Right. And so I'm super grateful to all of you people who love creatives. Mm -hmm. We're listening, trying to get to know your creative better through listening to this podcast. Thank you. You are also our audience. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Teresa Anthony said, she's a career counselor, is that on the Reusec 
the career assessment they use for aptitude in different areas. Artistic can also mean someone who helps artists, somebody who enjoys working with artists. It's not just somebody who paints or draws or, you know, sings or whatever. And that's, I think, an important thing to admit. And as you said, I'm so glad you said it, that what you do in synthesizing all these different disciplines is also creativity. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. I'm just so excited by that. Nice. Right on, man. Yeah. Um, you mentioned one thing that I'm curious about. You mentioned human design. Mm. Now, is that like the human design where it's like you're a generator or you're... Um, actually, so I know that there's this trademarked thing out there called the human design. But actually, when I mentioned the human design, I did mention that I'm in a spiritual work system. And it, uh, a mentor of mine that I study with is an extraordinary human being in the very most literal sense of that term. And he's brought together things from Tibetan Buddhism and Western spiritual alchemy and science. And he's just, you know, right up my alley in terms of all these things. And he talks about how the human design of just human beings in general is exploring, discovering, learning, growing, and creating. And that we get in a lot of problems thinking that we need to, like, you know, we, we have in our school, in our training hall, we have, and it's almost like a martial arts training hall, we have a bunch of slogans and things on the wall. And one of them is this big poster of, of a fish. And there's a fish getting Novocaine and there's a fish getting therapy and there's a fish getting blessed by a priest and there's a fish and the fish is all out of the water, right? And there's a fish getting saved by religion and there's a fish get, you know, taking supplements and there's a fish eating a keto diet or whatever. And then there's all <laughs> these different things. And really, and then there's this like, no, we just need to get the fish back in the water. And the part that's under the water is exploring, discovering, learning, growing, creating. And the analogy yeah. is for human beings is we're trying to fix and solve and medicate all these problems when really we just need to get back in the water. We just need to get on the design. If we're exploring, that means we're in the unknown. And if we're in the unknown, we're going to discover things. If we discover things, we're going to learn. If we learn, we're going to grow. And if we grow, we're going to create higher and higher levels of being that are characterized by healing, thriving, by joy, openness, love, kindness, and awareness. And that's the pith of the path is just keep coming back to our human design and trusting that if we are, in, if we are a fish in water, we will evolve in exactly the ways that we need to in exactly the right timing, and we will become the oak tree by nature because it's in our design and we don't need to force anything, but we do need to get back in the water and start swimming. Brilliant. Well, Michael Boyle, thanks for being on the Language of Creativity podcast. Is there anywhere that in the internet where people can find you and connect yep. with you either on Instagram or websites or how do they sign yep. up for your courses? Tell me a little bit about that. Thank you. The most active place to find me right now is on Facebook and facebook.com slash the relating revolution. And I do have a website, which is, uh, I tore it all down and I'm rebuilding it. So the caveat to that is that if you go there like today, it's still under construction. So cut me some slack. Hmm. But that is michaelboyle.live or .live, however you want to pronounce it, michaelboyle.live.live. And then I have a YouTube channel, but you know, YouTube doesn't give you your own name to your channel. But if you look up Michael Boyle on YouTube, you will probably find me. And, uh, and when I get a few thousand more subscribers, I might get my own name. 
to that channel. So please subscribe. And that's it, you know, so, but the most active place right now, there's tons of free videos and posts and useful things on both YouTube and on Facebook. Please send me a friend request, a message. If you, uh, I know a lot of the content sometimes that I bring up is personal. You're always welcome to send me a private message or engage with any of the content. And I look forward to meeting you.